With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Three, two, one. But I'm working out. I love to listen to your podcast. Whenever you say something, other people react to it. Taking my breath away, Aaron. Fern Lundquist joins me. Hall of Famer Jim Calhoun. NASCAR icon Dale Earnhardt Jr. Kirk Herbstreet is on the phone. Here. Welcome in, everybody. Episode 316 of the podcast. It is Super America, the Air Tour Sports Podcast. It is Monday, November 9th, 2020, people. I hope everybody had a great weekend, and what a weekend it was. So much to get into. This Monday episode will be exactly as the previous ones have been. We will talk a ton of college football. I know college basketball is right around the corner. We got plenty of time on the Tuesday and Thursday shows to talk college hoops. But on Monday, we celebrate college football. We talk college football and so much to talk about. This is how I will open the show. We will do the traditional thing where I take a break and come back. But first, got to open classic Instant classic, Notre Dame, Clemson, Saturday night, double overtime. You enjoyed the heck out of it. I enjoyed the heck out of it. We will talk about it from the Notre Dame perspective, what it means for this program. Uh, Brian Kelly is a guy that I have personally been following since he was at Cincinnati at around the time that I was at UConn. We'll talk about that. We will, of course, talk about Clemson, what it means for them in the bigger picture. And then in the first half of the episode, we will also eventually transition to Michigan. And I will tell you guys, I did not plan on turning this into a Michigan podcast, okay? It might as well be Wolverine talk with Torres here because every single week, I think I'm going to escape the Harbaugh conversation and every single week, something crazy happens. They lose to Indiana. They get smoked by Indiana. And I think for the first time, we are really having a serious conversation where Jim Harbaugh might not be back next year. We will come back, back end of the episode. I will talk Georgia, Florida. Don't think there's a ton there. Florida was the better team. We knew that. They win. We'll talk about it a little bit from the Georgia perspective. We will talk about Tennessee, which just had a complete meltdown against Arkansas. And I think for the first time, there is real concern about what is going on with Jeremy Pruitt. We will wrap a little bit with the Pac-12. USC looks terrible. UCLA looks terrible. What else is new? We will talk about them. 
Before we get started, I will be brief here because we want to get into the college football. I want to remind you guys, please make sure that you're subscribed to the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. If you love the college football talk, the college basketball talk, make sure you're subscribed. You can do it on iTunes, the Podcast Addict app. If you have an Android, Podcast Addict is the way to go. Podbean, Spotify, TuneIn Radio, wherever you listen to podcasts, make sure you're subscribed. Also, make sure to rate and review the show. Go ahead, give us a quick five stars. Let us know what you like, how you listen. Uh, wherever you are, whatever you do, it really does help us move up those iTunes charts. Finally, I say it every week, make sure you're following on social media at Aaron Torres Pod on Instagram. We do all sorts of fun stuff. And certainly as College Hoops uh, ramps up, we will do more College Hoops content on the Instagram page. Also, Aaron underscore Torres on podcast. I'm guessing, or on Twitter, I'm guessing most of you find me there. And on YouTube, page blowing up, 1,000 followers, Aaron Torres. You can find me on YouTube as well. Also, Facebook at Aaron Torres Writer. Oh, one quick thing. If you like college basketball, I think I said it last week, tomorrow, Tuesday's episode, big show, Cade Cunningham, the potential number one pick in the 2021 NBA draft joins the show. We talk about all sorts of good stuff, including how he ended up at Oklahoma State, why he decided to stay there when the the program went on sanctions. Really fun interview, really bright kid, really enjoyed that conversation. Also, I think next week before the NBA draft, uh, I will run some of the interviews that I had prior or at the end of last season. If you remember, I had Obi Toppin. I had Emmanuel Quickly, the SEC Player of the Year. I had Mason Jones. We'll probably rerun those interviews before the NBA draft next week. But today's about football. And with that said, people, no more time to waste. No more time to waste. So much to get into. So much to talk about. And the story of the gay, the day, the story of the weekend, the story maybe, frankly, of the entire college football season happened in South Bend, Indiana, Saturday night. And no, I'm not talking about the students rushing the field. Good for them. Had no problem with it at all. But the story itself was Notre Dame 47, Clemson 40. And in this college football season, it's been kind of crazy, right? Because we were so happy to have college football back, so excited for the season, But if you watch a lot of these quote-unquote big games, they really haven't lived up to the hype, right? Alabama blows out Georgia. Florida blows out Georgia. Georgia blows out Tennessee. Uh, Ohio State blows out Penn State. Clemson blows out Miami. And so when we're talking about now into the 10th week of college football in some form or fashion, really outside of that great A&M Florida game, not a ton of super exciting, super fun games to discuss but Notre Dame Clemson certainly delivers uh, just a crazy back and forth game. I know most of you were on the couch glued to your TV, but for people who didn't see it, really um, just just a, a great battle, right? Like sometimes, you know, I know everyone calls me, oh, you're hot take Torres. You always got to have a big opinion about everything. Sometimes you just get a really good football game between two really good football teams and you just enjoy the hell out of it. Somebody's got to win. Somebody's got to lose. It doesn't mean that everybody's terrible. It doesn't mean that somebody's got to get fired, all that kind of stuff. And that is what we got on Saturday night with Clemson and Notre Dame. Notre Dame largely dominates early. Uh, they're up 23-13 to 13 at halftime. 
Clemson largely got lost in the shuffle a little bit, largely dominated the second half, held Notre Dame to three points in the second half until the final drive. Ian Book takes Notre Dame the length of the field. They end up winning in double overtime. And celebration, mayhem in the streets in South Bend. Notre Dame wins, finally gets that signature victory over a marquee opponent. It's incredible. I'm obviously very happy for Notre Dame and their fans. Um, and that's really where we should start. So first of all, I want to say this. I know that the big story coming into the game was no Trevor Lawrence, right? How could it not be? Number one team in the country without their quarterback, not allowed to play. For people who are a little confused, he was already through the protocol of quarantining, but because he had not had that heart test because of myocarditis, he was not allowed to play. That is why he was on the sidelines, but not allowed to play. But when you have the number one team in the country going on the road without their, their number one starting quarterback, who is, of course, the eventual number one draft pick, of course, that is going to be the story of the game. But when I look at the bigger picture of this game, what it means for Notre Dame and what it means for both teams, frankly, I think the story was actually Notre Dame themselves. Because if you watch this game, Notre Dame largely physically dominated this game. Now, could you say, would it be have been a different result with Trevor Lawrence? Of course you can say that. You can't argue that Trevor Lawrence, the number one pick in the draft, would have made a difference, but I also don't think that you can argue that he, him not being there is the reason that they lost. To his credit, the freshman, DJ Uganlele, Uganlele, I forget how to say his name already. I said it last week perfectly. It was incredible if you missed it. But DJ Uganlele, I think is how you say it, 29 of 44, 439 yards and two touchdowns. So don't tell me this was only about Trevor Lawrence when DJ Uganlele throws for 439 yards, two touchdowns, and is largely phenomenal. Credit to him as a true freshman going on the road, uh, meeting the challenges of playing in a road venue with fans in the stands, I thought he was phenomenal. Instead, the story to me was not Trevor Lawrence. Instead, it was Notre Dame. It was Notre Dame stepping up to the table. It was Notre Dame being the more physically dominant team and really being the first team that I can remember pretty much in this entire run for Notre Dame that just physic or for Clemson, excuse me, that just physically dominated Clemson. Listen, Clemson's been in playoff games against Ohio State, against Oklahoma, against Notre Dame a few years ago, against Alabama, and I have never seen anyone physically dominate Clemson the way that Notre Dame did on Friday on Saturday night. On the offensive side of the ball for Clemson, they couldn't. The reason DJ Uyilaganlele had such a great game was because they couldn't run the ball. Notre Dame physically controlled the trenches. 34 yards total rushing for Clemson on 33 carries. In other words, they couldn't get anything going with one of the best running backs in college football, Travis Etienne. That is a credit to Notre Dame. That is a credit to their physicality. That is proof that they were just as good, if not better, and in this case, they were better than Clemson on this particular night. To take it a step further, the other side of the ball, Ian Book, did you notice that his uniform at the end of the game really wasn't that dirty? I mean, yes, in the second half, Clemson uh, ramped up the defense a little bit. He did take a couple sacks, but that offensive line was phenomenal. You look at the end of this game, 
a hundred and or excuse me, a hundred forty yards rushing for Kyron Williams. First play of the game, essentially, he rips off a seventy-plus yard touchdown run. Overall, Notre Dame rushes for over two hundred yards. And in general, five yards per rush for Notre Dame, over 14 yards per completion for Notre Dame through the air. And it was, again, because Ian Book had all this time in the pocket. So please do not tell me this was about Trevor Lawrence. This was about Notre Dame. We need to give them credit. They deserve to win this game because they were the better program. And now look, in the bigger picture, they now control their own destiny in terms of the college football playoff. There's really only like two or three teams that really control their own destiny, Ohio State being one, Alabama being another. I think you could make the case that Florida controls its own destiny in the college football playoff. I think Clemson does to a degree too. But for Notre Dame, this was what they've been waiting for. They've been waiting for that signature win. They've been waiting for that meaningful win. They get it, and now the path to the playoff is in front of them. I've spent the last six or seven weeks talking about who's number four in college football, and right now it certainly appears to be Notre Dame. If anything, Clemson's number four and Notre Dame's number two or three. But if you're, if you're Notre Dame, this is what you've been waiting for. You are now atop the ACC standings. You're the only undefeated team. You do have three out of your last four games on the road at Boston College, at UNC, Syracuse, and at Wake Forest. You win those games... You're going to the ACC championship game, potentially not even needing to win the ACC championship game to go to the playoff, depending on what happens in the Big 12, what happens in the Pac-12, and frankly, what happens in the SEC with a Texas A&M, a Florida, or whatever. So that's the great news if you're Notre Dame. Um, and my only other really thought on Notre Dame, and I do want to take this a step deeper than just the win on Saturday, I just want to say this, I am so happy for Brian Kelly. First of all, I'm so happy for Notre Dame fans. I'm so happy for um, I'm so happy for the alumni. I'm so happy for all people affiliated with Notre Dame football. Listen, I know fans of other fan bases. Oh my goodness, they're so obnoxious. Every fan has a, every fan base has obnoxious fans. But here is why I'm happy for Notre Dame, and more specifically, here is why I'm happy for Brian Kelly. I don't think this guy gets nearly enough credit for what he has done at Notre Dame. Now, admittedly, I am a little biased. I think I've said it on this show before, but Brian Kelly, when he was at Cincinnati, for people who don't remember because he's been at Notre Dame a decade now, he was at Cincinnati before Notre Dame, and when he was at Cincinnati, that was largely when I was at UConn, and it was crazy to come see him come in at, Notre, at, at Cincinnati. Cincinnati had Mark D'Antonio before Brian Kelly gets there. And the second Brian Kelly gets there, the program just takes off. Like, they were good under Mark D'Antonio, and then they went to another level under Brian Kelly. And so since he has been there, since I saw that up close and in person, I said, this dude's a rock star, man. And I remember vividly, I was just out of school starting my career when he got hired at Notre Dame. And I remember even saying back then, when I had no audience, when nobody knew who I was, some would argue people still don't know who I am, but that's okay. Neither here nor there. I remember saying it that I said, Notre Dame, you just got the guy. You've been waiting for the guy. You thought Charlie Weiss was the guy. You thought Ty Willingham was the guy. This is the guy. And I think Brian Kelly has largely lived up to that. The problem, of course, is we know how social media is. We know how other fans are. And by the way, to be clear, I'm not blaming SEC or Big Ten or Ohio State or Michigan fans. 
but we know how fans of other fan bases are. And of course, the argument with Notre Dame, oh, they're overrated. They're living in the past. They'd be the ninth best team in the SEC. Like every time we talk about Notre Dame, like we can't just have a conversation about Notre Dame, about them being good, about Brian Kelly being good without it automatically, well, they're overrated. It's like, well, no, they're not always overrated, right? And I think Brian Kelly doesn't get the credit he deserves because he's never won a national championship, because he's never won those super marquee games, but it comes down to something that I don't think anybody is willing to talk about. Because here's the thing sometimes with the media, right? And this isn't going to be like a whole media thing because the media is in a weird place with the public right now, but I think the media sometimes doesn't give you the whole side of every story. And I think that's one reason why you guys come to this show is because I present you the facts with my opinion, but one, I take it deeper than most people do, and hopefully I make you think differently than other people think. And so when everyone just says, oh, Brian Kelly, Notre Dame, they're overrated, they never win a big game. You can't just compare apples to apples when it comes to that. Because Notre Dame is a completely different job than Ohio State or than Texas or than Oklahoma or than Florida or Georgia or USC or Alabama. And that's not a discredit to any of those jobs, but in a lot of ways, Notre Dame is a way harder job. And I know fans don't want to hear it when Notre Dame loses a big game. Notre Dame fans don't want to hear it. And oh, by the way, Alabama fans and Georgia fans don't want to hear it. But it's a different job with different obligations, with different difficulties that those jobs don't deal with. First of all, have any of you ever been to Notre Dame? I know many of you have. We have a lot of listeners in Indiana, Ohio, uh, Michigan. Notre Dame's in the middle of nowhere, okay? It's cold. It's isolated. I've driven through there. And it's kind of almost reminds me of Lincoln, Nebraska, where Nebraska Cornhuskers play. There's not a lot before you get there. There's not a lot when you leave. And I'll be honest, even when you're in town, there's not a lot. And if we have listeners in South Bend, that's no disrespect, but that's the reality. It's not a super metropolitan area like USC. It's not a super metropolitan area like Texas and Austin. It's not a super metropolitan area like Madison, Wisconsin, or Columbus, Ohio. Columbus, Ohio, by the way, has professional sports teams. They got a professional hockey team in the NHL, the Columbus Blue Jackets, okay? South Bend isn't, isn't even close. So it's a small school in the middle of nowhere, it's, it, and it is a small school, by the way. I didn't realize just how small it is. I looked it up before I got on air with you guys, 8,700 87, 8,700 undergrads at that school. For comparison's sake, Ohio State has like 50,000 or 60,000. Same with Wisconsin, same with Penn State, etc. But I bring all this up to say that it's completely different than recruiting to Georgia. It's completely different than recruiting to Texas or Oklahoma or Florida. You got to get a certain kind of kid Oh, by the way, academics are really hard. Again, no disrespect to those other schools, but we know there's a lot of schools in this country where college football is king and where kids, if they don't want to go to class or they weren't very good in high school academically, will still figure out a way to get them in. Notre Dame's not that way, man. I know people that have worked there in football. I know people that have worked there in basketball. You have to be really good in school to get into Notre Dame, and you got to be really good in school when you stay there. And again, the campus life is a different experience. I looked this up just to make sure this was correct, but first of all, if you're a freshman through junior, 
you have to live in campus dorms. This isn't like at Ohio State or Alabama where the second you become a sophomore, you move off campus, you get a house, you take a bunch of online classes, you live your best life. You got to live on campus your freshman and junior year. The dorms are not co-ed. Look this up just to make sure. 31 dorms at, North, at Notre Dame. No co-ed dorms. Call me crazy because I was a college kid once. I would have liked living in a, in a non-co-ed dorm. No overnight visitors. No alcohol in any of the dorms even if you're 21. And so again, I'm not saying that Brian Kelly is coaching at, at, at East Tennessee and like, you know, it's impossible But what I'm just saying is he has a lot of disadvantages that other schools don't have to deal with. And I've often wondered, if you can win 10-11 games at Notre Dame in this era, he could win a national championship. Give Brian Kelly the recruiting base. By the way, that's the other thing. It's in the middle of Indiana. you got to recruit from coast to coast. There's no kids in your area, but even more because of the academics, you you have such a smaller pool of kids to recruit. So send him to USC where you can throw a rock and hit 15 Division I high-caliber NFL draft prospects. Send him to Florida. Send him to Florida State. I guarantee you that dude could win national championships there, and he might just win a national championship at Notre Dame. But like this idea that because he's not Alabama, because he's not Clemson, that Notre Dame is always overrated, no. As a matter of fact, it's the opposite. I think this guy is doing about as well as anyone could do at Notre Dame. Now, look, if we went in a time machine, we gave Nick Saban the job 10 years ago, maybe it's a different deal. Urban Meyer gets the job, maybe it's a different deal. Those are two of the all-time greats. But in the broader sense, I'm sorry. I know fans want to say Notre Dame's overrated. They never win the big one. Well, one, they won the big one. One, I don't think they could do better than Brian Kelly. Small school, middle of nowhere, no recruiting base, high academics, serious like restrictions when you're on campus no overnight guests in the dorms no co-ed dorms no alcohol in the dorms even if you're 21 that doesn't sound like much of a college experience to me and if I was an 18 year old kid I probably wouldn't choose Notre Dame and I know a lot of you guys are listening like dude I had a great time in college I wouldn't have done that especially if I'm a football player so I'm just saying is I just I hate when we do the whole apples to apples well he's not Nick Saban can't beat Bama well guess what You know who else can't beat Bama? Anybody in the SEC. You know who else can't beat Clemson? Anybody in the ACC. I love Brian Kelly, and I give him so much credit for building up this program, and credit to him. They now have pole position to get to the college football playoff. And look, we'll wrap on this topic, but what I would say very simply is we will see what happens once we get to, uh, you know, we will see what happens once we get to the ACC championship game. And it's not to take away from Clemson. We'll talk about Clemson momentarily. But Notre Dame deserved this win. Notre Dame deserved this moment. And credit to Brian Kelly, who has done an incredible job with this program. And as I said, I think he's about as good as Notre Dame could ever expect to do in this current climate and environment. Really quickly on Clemson, there's really not a ton to say. Um, And it kind of goes back to what I said a minute ago, is... Not everything has to be a hot take, right? I know you guys think that because I come in with strong opinions every week that everything Torres says is a hot take and he always has to go overboard. And it's like, no, Clemson. If you're a Clemson fan, I actually think you can come out of that game feeling relatively good about yourself. 
Are there issues? Yes, specifically rolling, uh, uh, running the ball between, uh, running the ball between the tackles. Absolutely. Is that a bigger picture issue that when you play Ohio State or Alabama, you'll have to figure out? Yes. When you have to play Notre Dame, <coughs> excuse me. When you have to play Notre Dame in the ACC championship game, yes, that is an issue that you're going to have to deal with. But I also look at it from the smaller picture and say, you didn't have the number one pick in the draft. By the way, I don't think people realize this. Notre Dame, or excuse me, um, Clemson's best defensive player, James Stalski, who is basically the captain of the defense, was not available last night either. So you go on the road, number four team in the country, without your offensive captain, your defensive captain, your offensive leader, your defensive leader, and you had, a, you had the lead with under two minutes to go before Notre Dame got the ball back and drove the length of the field. And so when I look at Clemson, I just sit there and say, dude, get healthy, they have a bye week, and then you look at the rest of the schedule. It's all there for Clemson to run the table and meet Notre Dame in the ACC championship game. They don't play this weekend, follow it up with a game at Florida State against Pitt and then at Virginia Tech on the 5th of December. But if you're Clemson, take a deep breath. You're going to be okay. You're going to get Trevor Lawrence back. And yes, you might have to win the ACC championship game to get into the playoff. But when you factor in that it's not in Notre Dame, it's not going to be in front of many fans. And most of the fans that are there are your fans in the state of North Carolina at the ACC championship game. I think a Clemson fan's got to be feeling pretty good because you went toe for toe with Notre Dame, had them beat late before Notre Dame ends up coming back and win without Trevor Lawrence and without many of the guys on your defense. Clemson, you're going to be all right. Everything's going to be okay. (laughs) You guys will be fine. You know who's not doing well today, though? How about Michigan? How about our boy Jim Harbaugh? And yes, as I said to lead the show, I apologize. I am sorry that this show has turned into Wolverine talk with Torres. I didn't intend to talk Michigan every week, but every week with this program, and for the Michigan fans that listen, and I know you do listen, you're frustrated that I have to talk about you guys every week. You just want an easy win. But every week it's a new story, right? Two weeks ago, they beat Minnesota. Minnesota's ranked, coming off a 10-win season. You're kind of sitting there saying, huh, this Michigan team might be pretty good. They might be figuring out this, this high-powered, fast-paced offense under Josh Gaddis. Then last week happens with Michigan State, and you say, oh my God, what the heck just happened? Well, it's okay. It's one loss. We'll get through it. We'll be fine. We'll bounce back. We got Indiana. We'll prove that we're there, all that stuff. And then the Indiana game happens. And with due respect to Indiana, I know they were ranked in the top 15. I know they were 2-0. But you are Michigan. You are Indiana. And with no disrespect intended to Indiana, Michigan can not only not lose to Indiana, you cannot lose the way that you did. 38-21, the final score. Michigan dominated from start to finish. And so the reason I'm talking Michigan again is not because I'm talking about a bad one and two team that is frankly irrelevant. I'm talking about Michigan because for the first time, me, who has largely been a Jim Harbaugh defender, one, I'm willing to admit I was wrong, but two, I'm going to say something that I never thought I was going to say again before. I don't think Jim Harbaugh's back next year. And I don't blame Michigan fans, I don't blame Jim Harbaugh, I don't blame anybody, but we are at a point now where it feels like this marriage is not built to last, it's not built for the long haul, and for reasons that I'm about to explain, 
I just don't see Jim Harbaugh being back next year. And before we get into yesterday's game, I do want to talk about the bigger picture because I do think it's important here, and I do think that there are two things that can be true about Jim Harbaugh, and I always bring them up because I think they're important. Whenever anybody in the national media, oh, he's the most overrated coach in the history of college football. No, he's not. Stop. He's not the most overrated coach in the history of college football. And the one thing, no matter what you think about Jim Harbaugh today, November 9th, 2020, no matter what you think about him, the one thing that you can't deny is this. This program is in a better place today than it was when Jim Harbaugh arrived, okay? I threw out this stat last Sunday, last Monday, so I'm not going to get too crazy going over it again. But Lloyd Carr retired in 2007. There were seven seasons between when, between when Lloyd Carr retired and when Jim Harbaugh got there. One 10-win season out of seven, one eight-win season out of seven, two seven-win seasons, and three losing seasons, okay? So essentially one great 10-win season, everything else, eight wins or worse. Jim Harbaugh is now in year six, which means he's completed five seasons, three 10-win seasons, one nine-win season, one eight-win season, okay? So whatever is happening right now with Jim Harbaugh, you cannot deny that the program is in a better place than it was when he got there. There is just, in fact, one problem, (laughs) and that is that it is not only not in that place that it was in year one and year two, it's going the other way in a in a is going in the other direction really fast and there doesn't appear to be any reason to believe that things are going to get better okay because when i watch michigan on saturday like 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 if you go back to the first few years of the harbaugh era at michigan like you could at least hang your hat on a few things right you could hang your hat. They're going to run the ball. They're going to control the line of scrimmage. They're going to dominate the trenches. They're going to beat bad teams. They're going to beat the teams they're supposed to. They might not beat Ohio State. Might not beat Bama or Florida State in a bowl game. But they're going to take care of the teams they're supposed to, and they're going to play really great defense. And when I watched Michigan on Saturday, it wasn't just that they lost to Indiana. It was that as I watched the game, I didn't see a single thing that they did that I believe they do at an above-average Power 5 level. In other words, if you take the average Power 5 team, I think Michigan is below average in just about every single category. I watched them. I'm telling you. They can't block up front. Joe Milton is not accurate at all. Part of it is he doesn't have much time to throw because the offensive line is bad. The wide receivers can't catch. The defensive backs can't cover anybody. They can't tackle in the open field. They don't do anything at an above-average Power 5 level. Maybe the running backs are really good. They looked really good against Minnesota. But since they can't block up front, we really don't know. And so when I look at this program, it is not only trending in the wrong direction, but it's trending the wrong direction in a hurry, and there is no reason to think that it's going to get better. Again, what I said a minute ago, at least in the old days, you knew that Don Brown was going to have the defense ready for everybody except Ohio State. They're going to get gashed by Ohio State, but at least they were going to be great against Indiana. At least they were going to be great against Rutgers, Maryland, Wisconsin, anybody that they played other than Ohio State. And I understand there was the occasional loss to Michigan State. There was the occasional loss to Penn State. I'm not saying they were perfect. What I'm saying is we had about a three, three and a half, four-year track record where For the most part, they won all the games they were supposed to. Now you look at this situation, 
and you see what's going on at Michigan, and I'm sorry, but what optimism is there going forward? What reason is there to believe that things are going to get better? I was talking about this on my radio show Saturday night, Fox Sports Radio. You look at the schedule. Where is the game that you feel like, okay, that is for sure a win? First of all, they're supposed to play Wisconsin this week. Best thing that ever happened to this football program, Michigan, is that Wisconsin got COVID. They might not be able to play because if they play that game, they might end up getting embarrassed. Outside of Wisconsin, I mean, Maryland's 2-1. and one. You can make fun of Maryland. I have made fun of Maryland. They're playing good. They just destroyed Penn State at Penn State. Rutgers, for the love of God, Rutgers played Indiana tougher than Michigan did this year. Rutgers actually gave Indiana a game. Michigan wasn't even competitive. And so you look at the schedule, like forget trying to beat Ohio State. Like I think it's going to be a challenge to beat Maryland. I think it's going to be a challenge to beat Penn State, who's terrible. And it does fall on Harbaugh, and it does fall on the coaching staff. And I understand there's all these different variables at play. He changed the offense, Don Brown, whatever. I'm just telling you it's not working, and not only is it not working, it is getting worse, it is getting worse in a hurry, and the gap between Michigan and everybody else is getting wider as we go on day by day. And what's most interesting is, I know we have some Michigan fans that listen to this show, but for people who aren't Michigan fans, this is an important fact. This is why it's so interesting. Not just because Michigan stinks, but because Jim Harbaugh has a very wild contract situation. For people who do not know, Jim Harbaugh has the shortest contract currently in all of college football, all of FBS football. He is only under contract until the end of next season. And for people who don't really follow this stuff, the reason that's important is a couple things. Virtually every coach has a rolling contract that's at least four years long. And the reason being is it's hard to go into a recruit's home and tell your kid, tell a kid and tell mom and dad, hey, come play for me when you only got one, two, or three years left on the contract. So you want me to, you want me to send your son to, to, to play for you when you only got two years left? You might not be here in a year and a half. And when you look at Jim Harbaugh, the situation with his contract is very simple. He signed through 2021. He was negotiating an extension during uh, the, the, the wintertime. And then the pandemic hit. And Jim Harbaugh, actually, you can say whatever you want about Jim Harbaugh, but in good faith, he put aside the contract extension because he just kind of said, like, it's going to look really bad if we announce a big contract extension in the middle of a pandemic. And he ended up screwing himself. Because I, what I can tell you is this. I know some high-powered people at Michigan through third parties and things like that. I'm not claiming to be Adam Schefter. I can get anybody on the phone. But I know what is going on at Michigan right now. And I know that even after the Michigan State game last week, the big boosters were willing to say, it happened, it's a one-off deal, whatever. What I can definitively tell you is when they lost to Indiana, the narrative completely changed. No longer was it just well, you know, it's one game, who knows, let's, let's see if we can bounce back, whatever. No, now it's, we lost to Michigan State, we got embarrassed by Indiana. And if you're a Michigan fan, if you're a Michigan alum, if you're a Michigan football player, you can never lose to Indiana. Inexcusable, cannot do it. Cannot do it. You cannot lose to Indiana. I don't care how good Indiana is. You're Michigan, they're Indiana, you gotta beat them. And if you, if you don't beat them, you gotta at least be competitive. 38 to 21, and like I said, Michigan doesn't do anything that makes you think that they're going to turn the season around. 
And so what I've heard, those big boosters are like, dude, we were going to give you that contract extension even after the Michigan State game. But now, how can we do that? And so I think it makes for a fascinating situation for the two reasons that I mentioned. I don't think Michigan, I don't think Michigan really even wants to get rid of Harbaugh, but they know that they can't go on the way that they are, which is losing to inferior programs. No disrespect, Indiana, it's the truth. But you can't extend Harbaugh because everything's trending in the wrong direction. And if you bring back Harbaugh for next season without the extension, how do you expect him to recruit not only for this year, but for the following year? How do you expect him to recruit anybody when nobody knows if he's going to be there beyond this year? And so what I'm hearing is that it is increasingly more and more and more likely that at the end of the season, this is just over. That at the end of the season, Jim Harbaugh, who always will have interest from the NFL, um, eventually will hear from the NFL and will eventually take a job in the NFL. And I don't think he wants to. I don't even know if the university wants to. But again, you can't bring him back on a one-year contract and expect him to be able to recruit and continue to hopefully build this program in the right direction. Can't really give him a contract extension when he stinks, though. And you certainly can't give him a contract extension in the middle of a pandemic paying him what he was. So it's surreal. It's crazy. But this is the first time that I really feel like this thing is going in the wrong direction. It's going in the wrong direction in a hurry. And I just don't see how Jim Harbaugh survives this deal. All right. <laughs> uh, going on long. Fun first segment of the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. And uh, yeah, I think what I'm going to do is I am going to take a break. I'm going to come back. I'm going to talk a little Georgia, Florida. I'm going to talk a little Tennessee falling apart. A little Pac-12. I think I'll talk a little Pac-12. You want to talk a little Pac-12? We'll talk a little Pac-12. USC, doing USC stuff. UCLA, doing UCLA stuff. Maybe we'll wrap up my boy Hugh Freeze, by the way, who has Liberty undefeated. He's got every fan base in the SEC that needs a coach swooning right now. Uh, But I think it's time to take a quick break. We'll be back. We'll talk some SEC. We'll talk some Pac-12. Maybe a little Hugh Freeze. Maybe my BYU Cougars. I will be back momentarily. All right, everybody. (laughs) I am back. Uh, Yeah, I've done this little break in the middle of the show the last couple weeks. I think it's worked out really well. Gives you guys a nice chance to take a quick break. If you're at the gym, if you need to stop the show, if you're driving in the office, whatever, gives you a nice place to kind of stop. And then for me, it gives me kind of a nice place to take a deep breath myself, recollect my thoughts, and get into the second half of the show. And as I get into the second half of the show, the big story to me is obviously the Florida-Georgia game. Second biggest game on the slate behind Clemson-Notre Dame, and obviously we know what was at stake in this game. Over the last couple years, it's been a de facto SEC East championship game, and in this particular year, it was almost a de facto playoff game, right? The loser of this game now has two losses. They're essentially eliminated from the SEC East title race, and they're really eliminated from the playoff race as well. And so we know what happened on the field. Florida dominates 44-28. to And the crazy thing was, if you watch the game, you know that Georgia jumped out to a 14-0 lead. Before you know it, uh, Florida State, or Florida, excuse me, I don't know why I said Florida State. Florida has 30 or 38 points. They dominate, they cruise to victory in this game. And so one thing that I think has been pretty consistent with this show that I talk about all the time, guys, is that um, 
I like talking the big stories, but sometimes the interesting angle isn't always with the winning team. And so when I look at Florida Georgia on Saturday, to me, the story isn't really about Florida. I know they were a slight underdog. I know that Vegas actually liked Georgia coming into this game. But I think if you listen to most people, they would tell you that you kind of it's hard not to like Florida. Explosive offense, they're healthier. And so Florida comes into this game as even though they're an underdog, I think most people thought they were going to win. They do win. They win in convincing fashion. And so there's really nothing to say about Florida that hasn't already been said. So instead, the interesting thing to me is Georgia. And the interesting thing to me is talking about them in the bigger picture and something that I've talked about many times on this show, but I think it crystallized itself on Saturday. And that is the very simple question of, has Georgia already missed its window to compete in the SEC and compete for national championships. Before we get too much into Georgia, it is important to say a couple things that are important for this show. Georgia is really, really, really beat up right now. I understand that they have been devastated by injuries over the last couple weeks, down three defensive starters coming into this game. Their best cornerback was in a bike accident, Richard LeCount. Thankfully, he's okay, but from strictly a football perspective, really tough to go play a pass-happy team like Florida and expect to slow them down without your best cornerback. Obviously, we saw the devastating, gruesome injury to the true freshman wide receiver. We hope that he makes a speedy recovery, but that was scary and sad, and frankly, I'm kind of visualizing it as I'm talking about it, and it was very alarming, so you know, best of luck in recovery to that kid. And then, of course, Stetson Bennett gets hurt at quarterback, and even before he was hurt, the game was over, but then it was really over. And so I think as Georgia fans look in the mirror today, I think they have to kind of look at, independent of the injuries, where are we at as a program? And to me, it kind of goes back to what we just talked about with Michigan a minute ago, which is very simply, not only are we not where we want to be, we're Georgia, we have invested so much into this program. And we're not competing with Clemson. We're not competing with Alabama. We're not competing with Ohio State. But the gap is actually widening. And that is where I would be concerned if I was a Georgia fan. Because at the very least, I know that that when you go to Georgia, when you are a Georgia fan, when you're Kirby Smart, the expectation is national championship. But at least coming into this game, you could say, Well, you know, listen, at least we're winning the SEC East every year, and if you get to the SEC championship game, maybe you'll break through, maybe you'll win it like you did in 2017, and if you win the SEC, you can get to the playoff, and if you can get to the playoff, anything can happen. Now, you're not even the best team in your own division. Dan Mullen is just getting things rolling, and if you're Georgia, the gap is widening between the top of the SEC and you guys, and you got to wonder if you're being left behind. And when I look at Georgia, I think it all comes back down to what I've talked about so many times on this show. It comes back to quarterback, and it comes back to style of play. And again, for the thousandth time, I will defend Kirby Smart from the perspective that he thought that he had the answer at quarterback in Jamie Newman. Jamie Newman, the transfer from Wake Forest, dual threat guy, comes, decides to opt out of the season. But Without Jamie Newman, Georgia is what they have always been under Kirby Smart, which is great run on the ball, great on defense, but don't have a dynamic quarterback. And if they can't win a game low scoring, if they can't win it 17-7, 17-10, 17-14, 21-14, they can't beat good teams. 
And I just think that Kirby Smart is not only stuck in the past, but he's almost playing a different sport altogether, right? It's really funny. The NBA draft is coming up next week. Not a lot of people know that, but that's not really the important part of the conversation. The important part of the conversation is this. I was talking to a college basketball guy the other day. You guys know I love college basketball, but I was talking to a college basketball guy about a certain prospect in the draft, and we were talking about how the sport of college basketball is almost a completely different sport than the NBA. There are guys that struggled in college basketball that aren't even good in college basketball that are having a ton of success at the NBA level because the game of college basketball is basically different than the game of the NBA. And I bring that back to Kirby Smart because it feels like he is playing a sport of football that no longer exists, right? And I've talked about it so much. I've, I don't want to get too deep into it. But look, the sport of college football is evolving into the NFL. What do they say about the NFL? It is a quarterback-driven league. If you don't have a quarterback, you can't win at the highest level, okay? If you don't have Aaron Rodgers, if you don't have Tom Brady, and even Tom Brady's kind of a, an archaic guy because he can't really run, he can't really make plays with his legs. You don't have Russell Wilson, you don't have Patrick Mahomes, you don't have Lamar Jackson. You cannot win at the highest level. We are now seeing that down trickle down to college football. Ohio State, ironically, has former Georgia quarterback Justin Fields. They can win the national championship. Trevor Lawrence, number one overall type pick. And if you look at the teams that have made the playoff over the last couple years and had success in the playoff, they are teams that have had NFL caliber quarterbacks. Two at Alabama, Trevor Lawrence at Clemson, Joe Burrow at LSU, Kyler Murray at Oklahoma, Baker Mayfield at Oklahoma. Say what you want about any one of those guys. I just mentioned three number one overall picks. I mentioned Tua, who would have been number one overall if he was healthy, and I mentioned Trevor Lawrence, who will be number over, number one overall last year. If you are not a difference maker, game changer quarterback, you cannot win in college football at this level, and that is the problem where Georgia is at. And at a certain point, it does fall on Kirby Smart. I know you had Jamie Newman. I know you thought it was going to be different this year, but at what point... Can you stop making excuses? Because you had Justin Fields in the program, you didn't use him. You had Jamie Newman, and I'm just saying, maybe I'm completely wrong on this, but I believe that if Jamie Newman, who's projected as a late-round pick, 5th, 6th, 7th round, if he felt like he could play his way into the first round playing under Kirby Smart, I think he would have stuck with college football. Instead, he leaves, and instead we're seeing the same thing. But this is now year five for Kirby Smart at Georgia, We've had multiple quarterbacks, we've had multiple offensive coordinators, and it's still the same deal. You run the ball, you play defense, you hope to win low-scoring games, and if I'm Georgia, I'm just freaking out that we've already missed our best window, because it comes back to what I said a minute ago. At the beginning, three, four, five years ago, at least you were competitive. You won the SEC East, you go to the college football playoff, you beat Oklahoma, you lose to Alabama in overtime. Following year, win SEC East, get to Atlanta, have Alabama on the ropes, can't quite get there. Last year, win the SEC East, get smoked by LSU, and now this year, get smoked by Alabama and smoked by Florida. And think about how the landscape of the SEC is changing in the bigger picture. Alabama, this was the year you were supposed to get Alabama. They had a top five pick, maybe the most dynamic quarterback they've had since Joe Namath or Kenny Stabler, whoever came first, most dynamic quarterback in the history of the program, just left the program last year. They lost 
two first-round wide receivers, Henry Ruggs and Jerry Judy. This was the year you're supposed to get Bama. Instead, you could argue Bama's offense is better with Mac Jones, with Steve Sarkeesian calling plays. Florida, you had them the last two years. Well, now Dan Mullen's got it rolling, and I don't think they're slowing down anytime soon. And if you can't get by those programs, by the way, Jimbo Fisher's got things rolling over at Texas A&M. LSU maybe potentially gets back here or there. What are you at Georgia other than stuck in the mud, stuck in neutral, stuck playing a style of football that worked in 2001 but not in 2020? And so as I think to this Georgia team, it goes back to what I say every time they lose a big game. I talked about it last year with LSU. I talked about it this year with the Alabama game, and I'm going to talk about it again this time around. I understand Georgia had a ton of injuries, and I understand they're a really good program, right? They're kind of like what Michigan was with Jim Harbaugh up until this season. You beat the teams you're supposed to, but you can't get over the hump against the great ones. But at a certain point, you can only bang your head against the wall so many times and not be able to break through, and I just worry as I look around the the rest of the SEC – Florida's only going to keep getting better. Bama isn't slowing down because they got another five-star quarterback behind Mac Jones named Bryce Young, who people think might be better than Mac Jones is in the long term. And if I'm a Georgia fan, I'm worried, I'm concerned, and it falls to Kirby Smart. Because as I said, you've now had multiple quarterbacks. Couldn't figure out a way to get Justin Fields on the field, by the way. Multiple offensive coordinators and you haven't got the job done, that guy, I don't know if he's in the program, the kid Dewan Mathis has struggled when he has played, but I'm freaking out if I'm a Georgia fan. You know who else I'm freaking out about if, I, if I'm a, a fan of? How about those Tennessee Falls, man? And, you know, listen, I do every Tuesday where Aaron was right, where Aaron was wrong, and I, I, I tell you what I did wrong, right? I own what I've done wrong, what I've said wrong, what I missed on. And boy, oh boy, oh boy, <laughs> Have I missed on the Tennessee Vols? Because the Tennessee Vols in week two, after they beat Missouri, I said that this was the best Tennessee performance that I had seen probably in 10 years since Phil Former was the head coach. Maybe Lane Kiffin had a game or two that one season, but I watched those Derek Dooley games. I watched those Butch Jones games. That Missouri game was the best Tennessee game that I had seen all year. Uh, Just one problem. They go to Athens the following week. They have a lead at halftime, they completely collapse, and they've never been the same since. And on Saturday, they lost their fourth straight game at Arkansas. I would argue it was probably the worst loss of the season, and maybe the low point of the Jeremy Pruitt era, and let me explain why. And to be clear, that's no disrespect to Arkansas, because Sam Pittman is doing an unbelievable job with that program. They're 3-3 and overall, they should be 4-2, and but it's not really about Arkansas. It's about Tennessee, it's about who they are, it's about where they were at in that game and the fact that they still lost it. And if you watch the game, first of all, Tennessee was coming off a bye, right? Like you can, I'm not going to excuse anything that happened before this game, but you can figure out a reason. Oh, you're playing Bama, you're playing at Georgia, Kentucky, if you just limit the turnovers, maybe it's different. But this week, you're coming out of a bye. You're refreshed. You're the healthiest you've been since the start of the season. And you expect, at the very least, a solid across-the-board performance. I mean, if you just lose to a better team, that's one thing. But you expect a solid across-the-board performance. And to Tennessee's credit, they largely had that in the first half. 
They're up 13-0 at halftime. They're running the ball. They're controlling the clock. They're dominating the line of scrimmage. Everything's great. Then the third quarter comes. Arkansas scores them 24-0, and Arkansas ends up winning 24-13. Now, I will say, in defense of Jeremy Pruitt, and, I, and when I say in defense of, because I've been doing that a lot, in defense of Jim Harbaugh, in defense of Kirby Smart, in defense of Jeremy Pruitt, I always say that because I want all the facts out there. I want you to have all the facts so you're not saying, oh, Torres is biased, or Torres missed this, or Torres doesn't care about that. Here are the facts with Tennessee. I will say when they were up 13-0, our buddy Jarrett Garantano was actually playing well, fifth-year senior quarterback who can't uh, limit the turnovers, was actually playing really well, and he went out with a head injury, which I believe was a concussion. I was kind of doing a million different things, so I didn't catch all the details, but he wasn't able to play. First problem, Jeremy Pruitt has a highly touted freshman that they believe is the future of the program. His name is Harrison Bailey. Instead, they go to a kid, Brian Maurer. Brian Maurer, zero completions, four attempts, couple drives. They finally, they take him out and they put in Harrison Bailey. So that's one. First of all, you should have just put in the guy that's the future right now because you got to start winning games. Second thing, late in the game. 24 to 13, you're down, right? You lose 24 to 13. What is the one thing that pops out when I tell you 24 to 13? Oh, I'll tell you exactly what it is. It's that it, they're down by 11, which is a two-possession game, okay? Got to kick a field goal, got to score a touchdown, two points to go to overtime. Well, Tennessee's driving. They're about on the 25-yard line, late in the game, about five minutes to go, to get to a fourth down. I don't claim to be the guy on Twitter that, oh, I know so much more than these coaches. This is their job. I get it. It's their livelihood. They know more about football than me. But everybody on the planet knows down 11, two-possession game, got to kick a field goal here to give yourself a chance to win this game by doing an onside kick, getting the ball back. Or, I, you know, I don't remember all the details now. Maybe they didn't even have to do an onside kick. Maybe they could have kicked it deep with the timeouts. Instead, Jeremy Pruitt goes for it, fourth down, interception, and that was kind of the end of the game. Tennessee did get the ball back with, you know, 30 or 30 something seconds left, but at that point, you got to score twice. If you kick the field goal, even if you attempt it, you at least give your team a chance to win, give your team a chance to get the ball back down one possession. Once you decide to go for it on fourth down, if you don't get the fourth down conversion, the game is essentially over. And even if you do, at a certain point, you're running so much time off the clock that it really doesn't matter because even if you get the touchdown, you still got to give the ball back, then get the ball back. And so it was just boneheaded coaching. Now, Jeremy Pruitt said it was too far to kick the field goal. I don't buy it, whatever. I think it was like a 42-yard field goal. You got to kick it. You got to give your team a chance to win. Third thing. Bad, bad quarterback handling, bad clock possession. And then the third thing, which was maybe the most important thing. When Tennessee got down, they folded like a house of cards. They folded like a house of cards. And this has been the issue with Tennessee for as long as I can remember, dating back to really the Lane Kiffin era. Every time something goes wrong, they fold. They're up 13-0. Everything's going well. They're running the ball. They're controlling the clock. They're playing fearless. Good for them. Shout out to them keep that going, but then the second something bad happens, they let their head down. They let their guard down. They do dumb stuff. They give up big plays. They, give, they, they miss their assignments. They do things that they shouldn't do. And so at the end of the day, 
while up until two or three weeks ago, I was defending Jeremy Pruitt. All of this falls on the head coach. This isn't going to Bama and just playing a better team. This isn't going to Georgia that's way ahead of you in terms of the rebuild and build the way that Georgia has been building the last couple years. This is just straight up, you're playing a team, and again, no disrespect to Arkansas, but a team with a first-year head coach who was way down further than you were. And that was the most frustrating part for Tennessee fans, I think. Jeremy Pruitt can't even go to the podium and sell, well, it's a process, it takes time. Sam, Sam Pittman's been there for 10 minutes. Sam Pittman has, has Arkansas at 3-3 three three without a spring practice. He has this team at 500, three SEC wins after they had one SEC win the last three seasons. So Jeremy Pruitt can't even sell, well, you know, it's Bama, it's Georgia, it's Florida. Nah, man. You just lost to Arkansas, and it's no disrespect to Arkansas, but first-year head coach, six games into his career, and you just got beat by them. And so for the first time, I got to be honest, I understand the frustrated Tennessee fan, right? Like last year, Georgia State, you lose to Georgia State, but it's year two, and you know you can kind of sell it as it's still part of the process. And again, you lose to Bama, you lose to Georgia, you lose to Florida. But you can't, you can't sell that anymore. You can't sell that. This isn't a top five team. This isn't a top 10 team. This isn't year game one of year two. We're now halfway through year three, and things are getting worse. Things are getting worse. By the week, every week, getting worse. Can't develop a quarterback, which, by the way, that's the incredible thing. I tweeted it out. A lot of people loved it. All the defensive guys from the, the Nick Saban coaching tree, it's incredible. Will Muschamp, Kirby Smart, Jeremy Pruitt can't develop a quarterback. But year three, Jarek Garantano, who you're terrified to let throw the ball, he's still the best option that you got. And then on top of that, beyond that, bad clock management, the team quits, and I understand the frustration of a Tennessee fan today. And I don't know what the answer is, and I'm the type of guy when I come on this show, I've said it many times, I like to come on and give you a definitive answer. Okay, this is the problem, this is the solution. Well, I don't know what the solution is. And here's the scary part for Tennessee. Kind of what I said a minute ago with Michigan. They're through the easy part of their schedule. They got AM this weekend, who is playing, I think, as well as anybody outside of Alabama. AM this weekend. Then you got to go to Auburn, who at home at the very least, Auburn is interesting. And you got Florida to close the season. You do have a game with Vandy in between, but at least Vandy plays people hard. They play hard. I watched them against Ole Miss and Mississippi State the last two weeks. They play hard. Tennessee's not even playing hard right now. And so if you're a Tennessee fan, I understand your frustration, and I really am. I do think it's time to start questioning Jeremy Pruitt. I'm not saying he needs to be fired. I'm not saying Phil Fulmer has to come down from his ivory tower and give him a, a pink slip. But at what point are there no longer excuses and you start having answers? Because Dan Mullins in year three, he's got things rolling. And I know Florida was a better situation to inherit, but it's not as though Kyle Trask is a can't-miss five-star guy. We know the deal with Kyle Trask. Never played quarterback as a starter in high school or in college till Dan Mullen got there last year. He's in year three. Mario Cristobal is in year three at Oregon, has them as probably the best team in that conference. I could go on and on and on, but I'll save it. Sam Pittman, year one. Lane Kiffin, year one, at least with Lane Kiffin, they have an identity. They got to outscore you, but they got an identity. Jeremy Pruitt, it's year three. What are you doing? 
And so I understand the frustration of a Tennessee fan, and I don't have the answer. And that's the crazy part. When I come on this show, I like to give answers. I like to tell you what to do, but I don't know what to do if you're a Tennessee fan. I understand the frustration. And oh, by the way, guess what? There's another coaching candidate with SEC experience right up the road, and I see Tennessee fans already starting to circle on Twitter. That guy's name is Hugh Freeze, by the way, in case you're not familiar with him. Um, But I see Tennessee fans going in on Hugh Freeze, and I get it. I'd be frustrated if I'm a Tennessee fan too. All right, really quick, do want to wrap with two Pac-12 things because the Pac-12 is back. Um, And I swear, the second half of this show is not bash coaches hour. But these are the narratives that are coming out of this college football Saturday. And I think the biggest story in the Pac-12, credit, by the way, to Oregon beating Stanford. Stanford didn't have their starting quarterback because of COVID. But Mario Cristobal is a good coach. Say whatever you want about Mario Cristobal. He's a good coach. Say whatever you want about the Pac-12. Mario Cristobal has Oregon playing well. They have an identity. They recruit at an elite level. And they are a program that's on the rise. But the biggest story out of the Pac-12 was USC. (laughs) And USC is the rare team coming out of Saturday that got a win that only made their fan base matter. It was insane. It's surreal. I live in LA. I can tell you USC fans are as passionate as any group in the country. Some might say delusional. Some might say they go over the top. But they know what this program is capable of when this program is peaking, and this program has not been peaking for a very long time. USC beats Arizona State, but it is the crazy, most most surreal game that you could ever imagine. USC, first of all, we should really backtrack because USC, as I said on last Thursday's show, USC, never forget, they are the program that fought harder for Pac-12 football than everybody. They are the ones that wrote the letter to the governor of California saying, let us play, which spurred the rest of the Pac-12 to get behind it and to play. So you know that they're fired up. You know that, frankly, USC probably has the most talented roster in the Pac-12. Keaton Slovis is awesome. Three or four potential NFL caliber wide receivers. An offensive tackle that might be a first-round pick if he had... Uh, If he enters this coming draft, he opted out and then opted back in because he wanted to be part of this. So what happens with USC? All that momentum, all that excitement, fight to play the season. Oh, I don't know. Just fall down 27-14. Get dominated at the line of scrimmage. Can't run the ball. Arizona State pops off a bunch of big plays. Arizona State runs for seven yards per carry when they have the ball and they're running the ball. Now, USC got lucky and won, but if you watch the game, it was surreal. I actually tweeted this out, and I believe it. Kevin Warren, how about this? Remember Kevin Warren, Big Ten Commissioner? I tweeted this out. I think it's a great line. Kevin Warren is more deserving of a lifetime contract than USC was deserving of winning that game. Because if you watch the game, USC was terrible. And it falls on Clay Helton. And it's the exact same thing and the exact same problem that they always have. Sloppy, undisciplined, poor tackling, penalties, although they weren't so bad last this past day. And they still found a way to win. They end up winning. They're, up, they're down 27 to 14. They get a tipped pass in the end zone for a touchdown. They end up scoring. Then they get the onside kick and they end up winning. But again, it's a win that nobody has any satisfaction with. 
because it's the most typical USC thing where they have more talent, yet they come out unprepared. They're not ready to play. They get dominated at the line of scrimmage. They can't run the ball. The play calling is poor on offense. Defense, they're getting gashed, and they find a way to win. And so if I'm a USC fan, I understand the frustration because I have seen this too much at this time. And I'm not, uh, you know, I've defended Clay Helton in the past, but it's like every single, at a certain point, you run out of excuses, right? Well, you're young. Well, you have a freshman quarterback. Well, you have a new offensive coordinator. Well, everybody was back this year. So what's the deal? One of those games that's worth watching. And I think in the bigger picture, I think it's concerning. I know Arizona State's good. Probably the second best team in the Pac-12 South. But there was a distinctive talent advantage. USC was the better team. But Arizona State was more physical. They were much better coached with Antonio Pierce and Marvin Lewis as their defensive coordinators, and they should have won that game. And so if I'm a USC fan, I'm very concerned. Finally, (laughs) if I'm a UCLA fan, I'm very concerned. So I think this is the first time I've probably ever talked UCLA football on this show. That's because they stink. But this is another one. Well, they've got Chip Kelly. Chip Kelly was maybe, uh, you know, a decade ago, one of the two or three best head coaches in college football, a player two away from winning a national championship at Oregon. And when this guy got the job at UCLA, never forget, there was a frenzy to get Chip Kelly in the winter of 2017. Florida wanted him bad. Florida, he was the first choice. Scott Frost was the second choice. Dan Mullen was the third choice. How about that? Instead, he chooses UCLA, and it has been a disaster. Somehow, UCLA has largely escaped much attention because it's UCLA. Even in the Pac-12, they're not as relevant as USC or Oregon or Stanford or Washington. But they open their season on Saturday, and they again largely escaped attention. I think I'm the only one that noticed this. But they lost at Colorado 48-45. to And here's the concern. Colorado's the worst team on UCLA's schedule. They have to play at Oregon, plus the Pac-12 South, which has USC, which is at least talented. ASU is well coached. This was the worst team on UCLA's schedule. Gave up 50 points almost and lost 48-45. And at a certain point, like you just got to wonder, like, what is going on with Chip Kelly? Because I'm starting to think, like, I don't think this guy really cares. Like, I think this guy has cashed his paychecks. He's a little bit older than I thought. He's like 56, 55, somewhere in that range. Probably made north of 25, 30 million. Like, does this guy even care anymore? Because the crazy thing is, that offense, that Chip Kelly offense that we got so excited about when he was coming back to college football, that Chip Kelly offense is delivering. Like I said, 45 points on Saturday. The problem is the defense. And the problem since he's gotten there is the defense, and somehow it's somehow gotten worse year after year after year. 2018, finished 102nd in total defense and 104th in scoring, gave up 34 points a game. Last year, 113th in scoring, 113th, excuse me, in yardage, 459 yards, 116th in scoring, 34.8 points per game. Saturday, against the worst team you're going to see all year, 525 points, 48 yard, 48 po- 525 yards, 48 points, in a loss to the worst team on the schedule. And so you would think if the defense had been as bad as it has been, 
that maybe, just maybe, Chip Kelly would have made a change. Nope. Kept the same defensive coordinator. Not Chip Kelly's fault. It's gonna, he's going to do it his way. And this is where I'm really wondering, like, does Chip Kelly really even care anymore? Because he's not recruiting at a high level. They're not winning. 3-9 and nine his first year. 4-8 and eight last year. The defense is clearly a problem. And now, instead of fixing it this offseason, he's had 11 or 12 months at this point. Because remember, they didn't make a bowl game, so it's not like he's been doing anything since December. Has plenty of time to fix the defense and can't. They look worse, worst team they're going to play all year long, and they're somehow worse. And if I'm a UCLA fan, man, I'm really worried. This isn't working. It isn't getting better. And I really do wonder, does Chip Kelly even care anymore? Because I frankly don't know if he does. All right, uh, I think that's it. I've gone really long today. I do want to very quickly give a shout-out to Hugh Freeze, Liberty. They are 6-0. and ranked in the top 25, and there are people, 7-0, and excuse me, there are people clamoring, I'm telling you. Tennessee fans are clamoring for Hugh Freeze. South Carolina fans are clamoring for Hugh Freeze. And I'll give the guy credit, man. I know he had problems with the NCAA. I know he was accused of some stuff, Laramie Tunsil, gas mask bong, but let me just tell you, at a certain point, I don't care how you get players to campus, what do you do once you get them there? Hugh Freeze, great coach, 7-0, beat Virginia Tech, and no matter how Hugh Freeze got players to campus, and I know people are going to get mad, well, do you just condone cheating? No, I don't condone cheating. But what I'm saying is, independent of how you get guys there, you still got to coach them up and you still got to get them to have success. Because you can cheat to get players, but once they get to campus, can you get them to play? Because I watched Mark Gottfried at North Carolina State, couldn't get them to play. Uh, I've watched all sorts of guys through the years. Can't get their guys to play. Hugh Freeze is, as I said on Saturday, he's football Will Wade. Say what you want about Will Wade. His teams play well and they win. No matter what Will Wade's doing to get players, but Hugh Freeze, it's going to be interesting now. NCAA violations at Ole Miss. Uh, prostitute scandal at Ole Miss. Never forget. Was calling Pixie and Stardust and Cinnamon when he was on the road. Well, He's winning football games again. I'll be curious if he's in the SEC sooner rather than later. All right. I think that's it for today's Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. Long show, good show, fun show. I will be back tomorrow, by the way. I think I said this off the top. It was so long ago. But I will be back tomorrow. Cade Cunningham, freshman of the year, national player of the year, potential number one pick in the 2021 draft. Cade Cunningham joins the Aaron Torres podcast Monday. It's going to be great. But that is, or joins Tuesday. I'm exhausted. I'm getting out of here. Before I do leave, want to remind you, make sure you're subscribed. iTunes, the podcast addict app, Podbean, Spotify, TuneIn Radio, wherever you listen to podcasts, make sure that you're subscribed to the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. Make sure to rate and review the show. Go ahead and give us a quick five stars. Let us know what you like, what you don't, all that good stuff. Uh, make sure you're following on social media. At Aaron Torres Pod on Instagram, at Aaron Torres Podcast Questions, uh, or excuse me, at Aaron Torres Pod on Instagram, Aaron underscore Torres on Twitter, Aaron Torres Podcast Questions at gmail.com. Make sure to follow on YouTube, make sure to follow on Facebook. Uh, and that is all for today's show. So thank you for listening. Shout out to Torrent Craig. Shout out to Rachel Hates My Voice. I will be back Tuesday with Kate Cunningham. 
With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.